Thank you. Please be seated. The text for the sermon is taken uh, from the epistle. We are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. We are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. I uh, am beginning in the middle of the end of this epistle. Uh, that tends to be my comfort zone because I always feel like I'm in the middle of something uh, that's about to come to an end and I'm not quite sure what it is. But I do know what this is. Uh, now I promise you that I am going to, uh, I, I will not ignore what comes before and what comes after these words uh, and I'll eventually get around to them. But mostly what I want us to do is to focus on the sliding telescopic idea. We're children of God, the Father. We are the heirs of God, the Father, and we are joint heirs with Christ. Children, heirs, joint heirs of God. What does that mean? Well, uh, first of all, uh, children are not equal. Let's clear the deck on that one. Uh, I mean, and, and if you don't believe that, just ask one of them, or ask yourself, you know, if your uh, siblings are not equal. Uh, for, uh, in fact, I would suggest you start with either the youngest or the middle uh, sibling uh, to ask that particular question. Furthermore, just because one is a child, that does not mean that one is an heir. I've known children in my life who are living today who were disinherited by their fathers and mothers. And for that matter, even that child who makes it to the heir status is frequently complaining and never quite sure of parental love. Uh, heirs uh, hardly ever enjoy equality. Uh, and what is especially true back then, when St. Paul was writing, uh, uh, that is especially true then, and in particular when he's writing uh, to these little house churches in Rome. They understood this. Now, the first cut was based on gender, or I should say, actually, uh, no, that's not right because women weren't even in the running at that point. You can imagine what that was like. This is not a woke sermon, by the way. Uh, I'm assuming that most of you know that uh, about me, but I mean, this is the Bible, so, and this is the text we have to deal with, so I want to look at this truthfully, and the truth of the matter is, uh, is, is that this was a cut uh, the first cut, uh, and and imagine what that would be like, uh, not even to have that have uh, 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 women in the running. Women, women. In fact, imagine this: women were in fact property, real estate, in antiquity, in Greece, in Rome, and even within Israel, a woman was property sold by her father to another family to become the wife of another man's son. Fact. And that's true for Rome, and it's true for Israel as well. Paul's uh, phrasing in this grouping of words then uh, is really interesting, and we need to be attentive to it, uh, because he's communicating an idea that is radically unlike anything they're familiar with, an idea that in all likelihood was repugnant to Paul uh, himself, at least at first, uh, and would have been perfidious in the original to the original audience. He flips back and forth, back and forth uh, between two Greek words when he's describing our relation to God, 
uh, and our relation to one another, our standing in God's kingdom. Uh, Paul piles up over and over again the phrase sons of God, sons of God, sons of God over and over again. For as many of you were led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. He uses that word son exclusively also for Jesus' relation to the Father. Jesus is always, always the son of God and never the child of God. The son, in, in particular, the elder son, inherited the family's wealth and responsibility. But then Paul flips it on the Romans and others who are reading this with this passage. We are the children of God. Uh, and if children heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, let me just say this. Uh, Paul's a stylist. He has a particular style. When you read St. Paul's letters, you, you say, hey, yeah, that's St. That's Paul. I, I don't think that Paul at this point stopped and said to himself, I've already used the word son too much. Um, it's boring. I'm going to throw in another word. It means the same thing. Uh, so that my readers don't get bored, like I might do if I'm writing something. I don't want to use the same word over and over again. Uh, no, that's not true. That's ridiculous. Paul knew exactly what he was doing, and he dictated the word uh, to one of his seminary students named Tertius. God bless that boy. I mean, can you imagine being the amanuensis of St. Paul? Good night. I mean, he, one, you'd probably have to write pretty fast because Paul would be just pacing back and forth, barking uh, this, uh, this epistle uh, uh, in his apartment at Corinth. I wonder, though, at this point, if Tertius quit writing, and he said, uh, hey, Paul, or St. Paul, probably wouldn't say St. Paul. Uh, hey, Paul, what, uh, are you sure about that? Are you sure that that's the word you want to use? Uh, you know, because, well, you know, Paul, it's not exactly the word you've been using. It's kind of, do you really mean that? Children. It's the word techna. That's a word. It is not the word for son. It's the word for children. Yes, Paul used the word sons far more frequently in his epistle, but it is clear that Paul's choice of words here uh, of our relation uh, to uh, God the Father uh, in, in, in would have been for his culture and people all around him a quantum leap. It's just way beyond their horizon. Uh, it would turn their world upside down. Why? Why would this turn their, make their world topsy-turvy? Uh, topsy because Paul means to include, and this is the radical notion, that Paul means to include every single disciple of Jesus Christ, and that means that women have the very same gospel privileges as men, even though they live in a culture that demeans them at that time, Hugely so. As I said, they were property, uh, but not within the church. They were not property within the church. It is crystal clear uh, that Paul means to make this clear because, number one, women were baptized on their own. Women were not baptized in their father's name. They were not baptized in their husband's name. They were baptized individually like everyone else. Women are just as much then the children of God, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ as men are 
and in the world of antiquity, that is repulsive. I'm not saying it's not just revolutionary, it's a repulsive notion in Israel and in Rome and in Greece. Christian liberty. Uh, Christian liberty for a woman back then uh, became then, and this is a fact, it became a social and political force that the church embraced instantly but not without some great difficulty. But you see it in the Bible and you see it very clearly in the New Testament and I can tell you where you don't see it. You don't see it in Pseudepigrapha. You don't see it in, in the other writings that go along with the New Testament like the Gospel of Thomas and that sort of thing. Because, in, in, and I'll give you an example, at the end of uh, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, Christ, the resurrected Christ is talking to his disciples, Peter, James, John, those guys, and they were worried about Mary, his mother. Uh, and, and he said, don't, don't worry about Mary, don't worry about Magdalene, don't worry about uh, the women who follow me because they too will enter into the kingdom of God and they will be turned into men. That's the Gospel of Thomas. You see how repugnant that is? That was repugnant to the Christian because he or she understood that, but outside. So we have this cultural conflict. Maybe there's, there's something for us to learn today with the, uh, uh, the nefarious cultural conflicts that we have to live with today, but we have to, we have to maintain and sustain our truth, what we know is true within uh, the boundaries uh, of, of the church of God. A daughter could not inherit her father's sheep farm, fact, uh, or, uh, or, or his vineyard. But she was perfectly equal to her brothers in Christ and the kingdom of God and the church. And everyone knew that the kingdom of God would outlast any sheep farm or vineyard or any other institution uh, made by the hands of men. And so maybe that's a lesson that we can learn and in some manner apply to the world that we live in today. These are the conflicts that we have to, we have to learn how to, uh, without just making up a bunch of rules, we have to learn how to walk as Christ would walk uh, through this very difficult time. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, uh, uh, but ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Those are fighting words in Paul's day because there's neither there's neither male nor female but we're all one here's another curiosity about that set of words we're children of God and if children heirs heirs of God joint heirs with Christ okay so it's clear now boys and girls ladies and gentlemen we're all equally loved by God the Father and we are all his heirs but what does that mean an heir is one who inherits his father's wealth when his father dies, right? That's what an heir is. That's what happens. Uh, I have a friend whose father and mother died, uh, and, uh, they, uh, and he inherited all of his family's wealth, and he loved his mother and dad, but he did tell me nothing was sweeter than getting money you didn't earn. Now, he loved his mom. You've got to keep all of that in context, remember? And by the way, 
That's a pretty good definition of grace. There's nothing sweeter than inheriting money and wealth that you didn't earn. So what does it mean for us to be heirs of God the Father? Does this mean that God the Father knows something we don't know? It's a family secret. He hasn't revealed it yet. Uh, is God the Father going to die? Uh, is he ready to turn the whole business over to the Son uh, and for us to run? Well, we all know. Uh, we all know because we're, we're raised up on the Bible. We all know that uh, one may be an heir and even receive one's inheritance before the death of the father. Don't we? We know that. Because we know the story of the prodigal son. In fact, that's next week, Trinity 9. We have exactly that situation where the young son goes to the father and says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. The sad thing about this, the, point, the poignant part of that verse is, is that generally speaking, that would mean when you die which is in a matter of saying, you're as good as dead to me now. And he, the father, divided unto them, his two sons, his living. Now I want to suggest to you uh, that our Lord, uh, in that parable, and in the epistle for today, is giving us some remedial instruction on how to rule the family, his family, when our time comes. And our time will, co will come. God will not die. That's a foolishness. But we are yet his heirs. And we will share in ruling over his creation. Uh, I want to suggest that that's an eschatological, uh, not suggest, I mean as a matter of fact, that is an eschatological event that we're moving toward, which is a co-regency with God over the whole creation. Uh, but I want to suggest to you that even that very notion takes us back uh, to, uh, to our original role as the husband of creation in the Garden of Eden. As husband, uh, we, uh, we were to dress creation. We were to uh, keep it, to honor, to love, to cherish, and to garden uh, uh, the, the garden of God and to bring it to, to bring creation to its full potential. Uh, and in what follows uh, the epistle for today, St. Paul presents a vision of a cosmic liberation of all of creation that will be liberated. It's also in John chapter 8 uh, in what follows uh, a, 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 a cosmic liberation that will result uh, in a new earth, a recreated earthly environment that will be fit for, the, for God's restored and resurrected children. Uh, Paul gives us a vision of our destiny as a children of God that includes the destiny of the earth from whose own soil and substance the hand of God sculpted our bodies in the first place. And from her gardens, from her rivers and streams, birds, beasts, and reptiles, a redeemed order of creation will come together as a fit habitat for the children of God. The gardener, the last Adam, will return to his garden with his joint heirs in tow. That's my first point. Second point, last point I want to make, uh, is goes back to the beginning of this epistle, but if ye through the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So we're still waiting for God's finishing up. Uh, and We are here in the middle of the end, uh, and we show our allegiance to our family 
by following the lead of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says over and over again. Be led by the Spirit. As heirs of God, we need to learn how to love and to respect this part of creation that we call our bodies of flesh. Uh, we are fleshly creatures. God loves flesh. But our flesh makes a dangerous navigator in life. When we put flesh in the driver's seat, it will steer a course away from the Spirit of God naturally. Flesh cannot be in the driver's seat. Well, it can be, but you don't want it to be. Flesh will seek to feed its appetites and ambitions, and that will nurture pride and self-centeredness. Now, as a caveat, let me just say, not all deeds of the body are to be put to death because the body is God's instrument for good in creation. Uh, the body of God's creation, it is uh, his creation, and we owe an appropriate debt to the body. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. And you can think, you've probably thought of many yourself already, but you can think of others. Very simple example, a couple of times a year, a gang of all saints, men and women, will gather on a Saturday, uh, and they will perform deeds of the body uh, uh, that were to, meant to benefit Christ's church and his community. We mow the lawn. We trim the trees and the, the well, not we, because as you who do it know that I'm frequently not involved with that because I'm studying very hard to do a sermon the next day. Um, okay. We owe to our bodies a debt. Food, warmth, medicine, rest, clothing, and other good things that God has made. When Paul says that we must put to death the deeds of the body, he's not, taught, he's not calling us to punish our bodies for being bodies of matter. We are to attend to our bodies, but we are not to permit our bodies to become the mistress or master of our life. And that's the main point that I want you to see. Uh, uh, because it, it's a poor master. Your flesh uh, on its own will not cry out, Abba, Father, but our flesh will lead and follow us, follow the Spirit. If you allow your bodies to pilot your life, you will follow the lead of the flesh. And if you allow that to become do the dominant force of your life, that's the way of death. It just is. I mean, because the body's going to die anyway. You cannot be a debtor to the flesh and also be led by the Spirit of God. There is no part uh, uh, there, there is no such thing as a heaven with little pieces of hell in it. And we're moving toward heaven. Furthermore, there's no hell with little pieces of heaven in it either. St. Paul's vision is one of a radical liberation, a cosmic liberation, personal liberation, not only from fear, death, decay, sin, but a liberation of the children of God who are free to cry out, Abba, Father and participate in his life to the fullest, lost in wonder, love, praise, and forever breaking into blossom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.